good morning, everybody. <sighs> Welcome back to Women's Bible Study. I'm so glad to be back with you. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and holiday break. I sure did. I felt like it went really fast, though. I thought January 18th felt far away, and it came so quickly. Uh, Christmas was really fun with Kaylee. Um, she's at that age where she's really starting to like get excited about things and notice things. And our Christmas tree was a huge hit in our house. Um, the second we put it up, she was just totally enamored with it. And first thing she'd get up in the morning, she would freak out if the lights weren't on yet. Like they had to be on right away and they had to stay on until she went to bed. And every time she went to bed, she had to say goodbye to the tree. And every day she'd spend so much time just touching each of the little lights and pointing out which one was red or Elmo because everything red is Elmo and blue and yellow. And she loves all the colors. And so it was just a really fun time because all of the things that I take for granted every year just had a new excitement to them this year with her. So we're back and we are diving into the book of Romans this year or this semester. And by now, you should have gotten two books. If you haven't gotten them yet, they're in the back for you. As you go to your groups, you can make sure to grab them. Um, There are two books that go along with this study by Tim Keller. And so I'm going to ask you to do me one really huge favor and hold on to that second book and put it somewhere you will remember where it is. Um, I'm just anticipating right now we will get seven weeks in and need our second book and forget where we put it. So maybe right in the back of your first book where you put your second book, Um, just so that we don't lose them. There is a limited number of them, and I don't want you to miss out on the second half of our study. So um, make sure you grab those two books. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting study. It's a new study by Tim Keller that we're trying out, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, Every study has strengths and weaknesses, but I thought this one looked really interesting. There's maybe a few more questions than we were used to with Max Lucado. Might get a little more in-depth, but there are always options to go a little deeper if you want to, or you can do it a little bit quicker if you don't have the time. Just do your best and come, and we always learn from each other. That's the whole goal. So before we jump in, we're jumping right into the first lesson today. I know not everybody got to do it, but it's okay. We will read it together and we'll go through it together. But I wanted to first give us a little background on the book of Romans as a whole. So this book is written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he has never visited yet. Um, This would probably help explain why he starts off here in our first chapter, establishing his credentials, and he teaches the basic foundations of the gospel in a pretty succinct form here in our first chapter. The church in Rome is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And it's not really clear how they became believers, but it's probable that or plausible that Jewish believers who were present at Jerusalem at Pentecost then took their new faith back to their home city. So the believers in Rome have divided into two factions, the weak and the strong in faith. And they're quarreling about whether Christians should continue to practice some of the Jewish practices. And Paul here hopes to heal that division. 
He writes to the church in Rome because he wants them to first understand the gospel, but then he wants them to fully experience the gospel. So Romans as a whole is a kind of Christian manifesto, a manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says this of the book of Romans. It is worthy, not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Calvin says this, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of scripture. So this is an important book. And as Patty said, it's, it's dense, but it's really good. So um, as I was preparing to give an overview of the whole book, I came across a video that I thought gave a really good and powerful overview of the book better than I could do. So we're going to start with watching this video. It's about 10 minutes long, but it'll give us a really good overview of the book of Romans. So let's watch this together. That's the book in a nutshell. (laughs) Amen, huh? (laughs) Well, today we're starting right in with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In this short passage, Paul lays out a great explanation of the gospel. And I want to read that explanation as we start. And honestly, it's so powerful. And I'd really like us to, if you are able, stand with me for the reading of scripture. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 and verses 14 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 17, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be seated. Paul here gives a pretty succinct description of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Put most simply, the gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration. It is not advice to be followed. It is good news about what has been done. Keller points out that this is the difference between the gospel and every other religion 
It is good news, not good advice. It's news about what has already been done for you, not good advice about how you should live. Keller says something has happened outside you, for you, and it inflicts into you life-changing joy. That is the gospel. John Stott says that here Paul discusses five fundamental truths about the gospel. He shows what the origin of the gospel is, the substance of it, the scope of it, the purpose of it, and the goal of the gospel. And so I'm going to use those five truths to outline our looking at this gospel message together. Number one, the origin of the gospel is God. We are not inventing our own message It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It isn't that the gospel brings the power of God or results in the power of God or is a means to the power of God. It is the power of God in verbal form. Verse 2 says the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture There is a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. The scriptures all witness to Jesus. All the way from Daniel 7, he is the son of man. And in Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant. That brings us to the second point. The substance of the gospel is Christ. What is the content of the gospel Verse 3 says, regarding his son, the good news is a person, God's son. The gospel centers around Jesus. It is about a person, not a concept. And it's not about us. It's about him. Number three, the scope of the gospel is all the nations. God isn't picky about who his power is at work for. It is for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, Greek and non-Greek, wise and foolish. The cross crosses every divide. Number four, the purpose of the gospel is to bring people to the obedience of faith. And I'm going to come back to this point later because I think it's a great way to conclude and to apply the message today. But overall, this passage and this book as a whole teaches not that you have to have faith and obedience to be saved, but that there is an obedience that flows from our faith. It springs from wholehearted devotion and trust in Jesus. Obedience flows out of our faith. And finally, number five, the gospel, the goal of the gospel is the honor of Christ's name. Stott says this, we should be jealous, as scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name. Troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest of all missionary motives is zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And Paul makes three personal statements about his preaching the gospel in our passage. He says, I am bound, I am eager, and I am not ashamed. Stoughton, his commentary, points out that the words, I am bound, can also be translated, I am a debtor. It isn't that Paul has borrowed something from the Romans, which he must repay. Instead, it's that Jesus has entrusted him with the gospel for them. This is a metaphor of stewardship. He has been made a debtor by Jesus Christ, who committed the gospel to his trust. It's the same with us. He's saying His saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel points to the idea that perhaps he has been tempted to be ashamed. He knows that temptation all too well. He knows that the gospel, the cross, is foolishness for some and a stumbling block to others. The gospel arouses opposition. It arouses contempt and sometimes even ridicule. He is not ashamed of the gospel. Well, before we come to conclude this passage with an application, I think there's an important phrase here in our passage that we need to better understand before we get any further into this book, because it's going to come up again and again, and that is the righteousness of God. Think about this question. What is it about God that the gospel message reveals? What is it about God that the gospel message reveals? We just went through the basics of this gospel message. What, it is, what is it about God that is revealed through it? We might expect Paul to say God's amazing love, and surely it does show that. Or we might expect him to say God's grace in saving us even when we don't deserve it. And surely that's true too. But I think what Paul does say here is telling the righteousness of God. What is it about God that the gospel reveals? Paul says the righteousness of God. Because we could never understand or discover how God could be both just judge and a savior for sinners without the gospel. And I like what Martin Luther says about this. And as many of you might know, this was something that Luther particularly struggled with in his feeling completely unworthy. He felt completely sinful. And he came to this phrase, the righteousness of God. And this is what he says of it. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood in the way, but that one expression the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous night and day. I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn into and gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now 
it became to me inexpressibly sweeter and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Stott in his commentary says that the righteousness of God is a divine attribute, a divine activity, and a divine achievement. First, it's a divine attribute in that God's personal righteousness is seen in the cross of Christ. Paul defends the righteous character and behavior of God throughout the book of Romans. He is absolutely convinced that all that God does is going to be absolutely consistent with his righteousness. It is a divine activity in that his saving action for his people, he is loyal to his covenant and to his promises. Therefore, salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes. And it is a divine achievement in that a righteous status that God requires if we stand before him is achieved through the atoning sacrifice on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. We end up with his righteousness, even though we have not lived it. I like how Keller explained it, and it's a new way of understanding justification for me. So he said that to justify something is not to change the object, but it is to change your relationship to the object. For example, if you were to say something to me and I asked you to justify that statement, you're not going to change the statement, but instead you're going to change my relationship to the statement. It's hard for me to accept it, so justify it to me. That would change my regard for it so that I can accept it. Help me to get into a new relationship with it so that I don't reject it. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's changed God's regard for us. He justified us. He changed God's relationship to us. Something has been done so that now the Father looks at us and he loves us, delights us, delights in us, and he accepts us. God's relationship to us has changed because we have been justified or made right. Now, that is not to say that when we come to faith, we are not changed. But it is not that change in itself that justifies us. It is Christ and his work on the cross. And that is the righteousness of God. It's an attribute of God, an activity of him. And thank goodness It's an achievement whereby we are made right with him. And so out of love and gratitude, we long to live out our faith in what our passage calls the obedience of faith. For Paul, faith and obedience go hand in hand. While they're always distinguished, they're inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. Paul shows us not only how the gospel makes sinners righteous, but also how this precious gift of God is enjoyed in our lives, how it produces deep change in our behavior and in our character. Martin Luther, who you might have noticed I've quoted a lot today, said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
Faith brings about grateful, joyful, and trusting obedience. And verses 11 through 12, which we didn't read yet, show us part of what this obedience that comes through faith is. It says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. We should use the faith and gifts that the Lord gives us to encourage and build one another up. Paul knows about this reciprocal blessing of Christian fellowship. And although he himself is an apostle, he is not too proud to say that he needs it too. Keller, when talking about the obedience of faith, says this, you never have the righteousness of God put upon you without at the same time finding that it is developing within you. Well, as I was studying and reading this passage, I came across this question in one of my Bibles. How has the gospel transformed your life? How has the gospel transformed your life? And I thought this was a great way to start our study of Romans with this question. And I invite you to ponder it with me today, throughout the week, and throughout your study of this book. How has the gospel transformed your life? For the Apostle Paul, he saw himself as a slave to Christ, indebted to him. And therefore, he describes himself as bound, eager, and unashamed of the gospel. Is that how we feel as well? Are we bound to the gospel of Christ? Are we jealous for the honor of his name? Do we know and feel the offensiveness of the gospel, but still stand unashamed of it, knowing that it is the power of God for our salvation? How has the gospel transformed your life? Do we feel the immense gratitude for the truth that his righteousness has become ours? For the truth that we end up with his righteousness, even though we have not lived it. And does that truth produce a deep, massive change in our behavior? Does it produce within us this obedience of faith? Does it help us to serve his people more as we are mutually encouraged by one another? How has the gospel transformed your life? I hope that you ponder this question with me over the next weeks and months of this study. I hope that it doesn't leave us unchanged, but produces in us an unreserved commitment to Christ our Savior. Well, the song I have to close us today is called My God is Still the Same. And I liked it because I felt like it powerfully declared the gospel. Because as Paul says in our passage, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let's listen to this song. Close in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that we can rely on you, that we can trust in you. God, I thank you for the truth of this gospel message. You are powerful. 
that we get your righteousness, even though we haven't lived it. Lord, I pray that the gospel truly would transform our lives, that we would live it out in the obedience of faith as we encourage one another and follow what you call us to do. Lord, would you speak to our hearts today and be in the midst of our groups and may our time together be a wonderful time of fellowship and hearing from you. In your name I pray. Amen.